Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Before we start this episode of Politics on the Couch, I want to tell you about a book I've written. I may have mentioned it before. It's called Politics, A Survivor's Guide. How to stay engaged without getting enraged. If you're interested in the psychology of politics, the causes of polarisation, or maybe looking for an antidote to toxic culture wars, perhaps you just like this podcast. In any case, I'm pretty confident you'll enjoy the book. And if you want the live version, I'm speaking at some literary festivals and in rooms above pubs over the coming weeks. Come along and we can set the world to rights, just as we try to do on this podcast. There's a list of events and links where you can order the book on my website, raphaelbear.com. That's raphaelbear, all one word, dot com. And as of this Thursday, the 4th of May, you can buy Politics, a survivor's guide, the old-fashioned analogue way, in a bookshop. Right, that's enough about me. Let's get on with the show. Now, it's fair to say this podcast has sometimes dwelled on the darker side of human nature. Maybe that's an inevitable consequence of rummaging around in the psychology of politics, which is not famous for being a gentle business. On the contrary, to succeed as a politician, you need a thick skin, a ruthless streak, the kind of single-minded determination and sheer brute willpower that, if applied in many other walks of life, would be, well, pretty antisocial. But politicians also have to win votes and represent the needs of the electorate. Well, in a democracy they do. And that means understanding those needs, demonstrating compassion. It requires empathy. Now there's a word we've used a lot in previous episodes. Empathy is a quality that has come up when we're talking about polarisation. How else to bridge the cultural divisions without the capacity to understand, to feel what's going on in someone else's life, in their mind? And empathy or rather the deficiency of it, has come up when we've talked about demagogues, authoritarians. But we've never really stopped to consider what it really means, what it consists of, and how it might be different from other kinds of fellow feeling. Is it a form of compassion? Generosity? Kindness? There's a word we haven't used much on the podcast, but that's about to change, because my guest for this episode has literally written the book on the subject. She is highly distinguished psychologist and broadcaster Claudia Hammond. Claudia is a visiting professor of the public understanding of psychology at the University of Sussex. So frankly, it's a mystery why it's taken us so long to get her on the podcast. She hosts Radio 4's All in the Mind and Health Check on the BBC World Service. She's written a number of books about human emotion and behaviour, all demonstrating the same narrative gift for making some pretty deep psychology accessible to the lay reader without diluting the science. The most recent work in that genre is The Keys to Kindness, a book about, well, kindness, how fundamental it is to human nature, how we often forget it, how we get better at it with practice, and why it's a more powerful tool for navigating the world than is often recognised. Regular listeners to Politics on the Couch will know that we aim for at least a dose of optimism in each episode. Well, this time, we're binging. 
Claudia Hammond is an optimist, and she has the data to support that position based on unrivaled expertise in the field of people being nice to each other. So how does that apply to politics? Why is kindness so hard to enact in Westminster? Does Claudia's optimistic view apply even to the callous cynicism of tribal politics? There is an answer to that question, but before we get to it, there is the essential business of defining terms. So at the start of our conversation, I asked Claudia what exactly we're talking about when we say kindness. There are lots of definitions, and as usual, academics debate the definitions, um, and it does cross over with other things. So obviously kindness crosses over with compassion, it crosses over with empathy. But a definition, a working definition that some academics use, which I really like, is that kindness is an act or a thought that has the intention of benefiting someone else. And I think the intention is really important there because obviously sometimes you can think you're doing something kind and it's it's not well received, but the intention was there. You thought you were being kind and the intention was there and that that's what, that's what matters and that that's what kindness is. And crucially, then the intention could also be partly to benefit yourself. I mean, I don't want to leap ahead, but we have to recognise and certainly in the book you're very clear that a kind act that rebounds in a positive way to the person who does the kind thing you give to charity to feel better about yourself for example that's okay that's still, yeah, a, still, I don't mind still that. the kind thing I don't mind that because we want people to give to charity and I think you know we have evolved to that we know our brains reward us when we're kind because we have evolved to cooperate with humans that is the success of humans and so I say don't fight that because it's very hard to find a kind act you can do that doesn't make you feel at all good you know famously there is an episode of friends where phoebe tries to do this she tries to do the ultimate selfless act and always gains from it in the end and and almost written away realizes you can't and that's friends but it's a kind of a philosophical point that you you do just benefit yourself and that that we shouldn't fight that that's okay because we want people to give we don't want people to be put off by thinking well i was volunteering to help with the community garden but i'm enjoying this so much i must stop right now and not do it anymore but since you mentioned evolution then that is an important distinction when i think there is a feeling that kindness charitable actions or solidarity even there's another word that where this is all sort of gets tangled up uh, is something that uh, is a part of a civilizing process that happens to primal beastly humans that actually in our most sort of basic atavistic form we're not that kind uh, and as i understand it that's what you're saying that's that's not true and the evidence that seems to be in two places one is literally our brains turns out you know do kindness at quite a primitive level and also interestingly little children are much kinder than we yeah i love the toddler experiments they're actually some of my favorites because they're so sweet because we might think of you know the terrible twos and the tantrums that they have and that toddlers only care about themselves and in one way you know all of those things are true but if they're given the opportunity to be kind they really want to so there's really sweet experiments where they'll do things like have an adult who is carrying a pile of magazines and they want to open a cupboard they can't open the cupboard door because they're carrying the pile of magazines and even 18 month year olds the vast majority of them will go and try and open the door for the adult and you can see in the videos of them it's really sweet they're all sort of puffed up with pride for having done it and that they want to help when they can and then to make it harder they then do the same experiment but they make sure that the toddler is playing a game they really like will they actually leave their game to go and open the cupboard again yes you know they get sort of 91% doing it 94% doing it huge numbers and then they make it so they have to leave a game and climb over some obstacles to get to the cupboard door and they still want to do it. And they're only 18 months old. They're really little. So they haven't developed theory of mind yet. You know, they don't know that the adult is thinking um, how difficult this is and that they can't do it. They just see that there is an opportunity to help somebody there. So it's almost like they're primed to help. That's incredibly important, I think, because from an evolutionary point of view, I can see how it makes sense that the society that works out methods of cooperation can solve problems better and will essentially outwit the rival tribe. And, you know, in a the horribly crass Darwinian sense, we will select for cooperation and selflessness as well as you know, brute force and selfishness. But you, know, you mentioned theory of mind. Again, I suppose I had thought before reading the book and coming across the data that you just described that empathy and elements of compassion require the ability to project 
into the head of another person, which is a level of sophistication and cognition that I thought you only get about sort of five or six. Yeah, that sort of age, yeah. is that right? Yeah, so you don't, and that is true. So you don't need to know that the adult is frustrated about not being able to open the door, but they do guess that they want to open the door and that they could help them do it. So um, they're not thinking about what the adult is thinking, but they are noticing what they're trying to do. And doing it, and interestingly, uh, you know, Michael Tomasello, the the um, who's at the Max Max Planck Institute, he he calls toddlers indiscriminate altruists because they will do this for other toddlers as well. They do it for other children, not only for adults. And other children are much less likely to have something good to give them because the other thing you might think is, oh well, they're just doing it to curry favour. They might get given some cake, but actually, they will do it for other children as well who haven't got anything good to give them. So they're indiscriminate altruists at that age, and they actually get more choosy as they get older about who to trust, which is interesting. Once you can walk about properly, then you need to slightly be wary of where you go. Well, I suppose, yes, if you're, you know, again, thinking about the, from the evolutionary point of view, if you're surrounded by family and kin who will look after you, it makes sense to presume that everyone's basically quite good. And then at some stage, you have to develop groupishness, for want of a better word. And that does take us to the sort of sad tale of how we unlearn indiscriminate altruism then, because, you know, there is... You know, everyone listening to this podcast will know a huge amount of data that shows how horribly easy it is to instigate in out group mentalities and there are the famous experiments, some of which are methodologically a bit unsound now, you know, the Stanford one being the, the Stanford prison thing being a classic example. But there are plenty of other things you cite in the book and elsewhere that demonstrate how quickly if you just give people blue labels or red labels or call them group A or group B, they will start to discriminate. And so we sort of unlearn indiscriminate altruism. Is that fair? Yeah, so you can you can then start to divide people easily, as you say, just by, you know, randomly putting them in two groups and they will start to, interestingly, not so much discriminate against the other group, but show favouritism to their own group. And they will start, if you give them money to share out, they will um, give a little bit extra reward to their own group than the others or give them sweets to share out. And adults will do this and children um, will give a little bit more to their own. And of course, you could say, oh, well, that's just favouritism. They're just being nice. But of course, favouritism has the effect of discriminating against the ones who you aren't favourite to. If you give all the jobs to the people exactly like you, you're discriminating against the people who aren't exactly like you. So, yes, so in a way, you you slightly unlearn your kindness. But I think it is still really important that intention to be kind, that desire to be kind is there in the first place. And the reason it is, is there is because cooperation between humans really does work and people do choose partners who are kind and partners who have the same letter at the beginning yes. of their name and them. that's a slightly different yes. point but yes yes that's partly our own egotism <laughs> yes <laughs> yes like so this was a study that found that more people uh more women in america at a certain time were more likely to have married a man with the same first letter of surname as their own and it's true we do like the letters of our own name better than others Phil is Phil the producers indicating just for that reason. (laughs) (laughs) And Louise has lived in Louisiana and uh, Yes, a disproportionate disproportionate number of of Louise has lived in Louisiana. I mean where this is sort of going in my head, I suppose, is that at some point there is a a tension or a line I'm trying to get clear in my mind where a sort of a socialization process where yes, we become groupish, but also we retain that fundamental capacity for for kindness uh, and empathy and compassion. And we can talk about the distinctions in a minute. And then there's a separate process for mediating social interests and needs and making difficult choices uh, to organize a society, which we call politics. And my worry is that something about the way that second process works, politics, is leaning way too hard into all the forces, the groupishness and the tribalism and the forces that are militating against our natural instinct for kindness. Am I right to be worried about that? Yeah, I think so. And I think partly, you know, particularly here, say in the UK and in the States, we have got an adversarial system. And so the parties will appear to be against each other all the time. And I think what's interesting is that privately, all the bits we don't see, they're not always as against each other as we think. You know, there are cross-party select committees working together really hard on on forming good legislation and working out how the different parties can contribute and and make some legislation that's good. As individuals will say, oh, they're, you know, they're proud of having done that. But of course, those aren't the bits we see. They're not the bits we're 
as interested in maybe but the, and there are cross party friendships as and well you know you'll know lots of politicians that they're sometimes friends with people from the other party and it's kind of shocking in a way but they are well that, and the fact that it's shocking is in itself incredibly interesting and actually i know the people who have neighboring constituencies they have interest in common with their constituents or they get on the same trains into westminster and they develop these almost secret bonds that cut across party lines and I wonder to what extent there's an element there that of there's a different social pressure. So what role does sort of embarrassment and shame play that somehow in a political environment, we've got a situation where it's it's socially awkward to be seen to be agreeing with someone from the other side, whereas in almost any other context, you'd have thought it's recognised as a virtue. Yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely true that they they can't be seen to be doing it when in fact they are doing it because of course MPs have got a lot in common with each other. You know, they're all people doing the same job. They've got so much more in common with each other in a way than than the rest of us. So in a way, it shouldn't be surprising that people on different sides. But we see it as so tribal and what presented is so tribal and also I think often in the end they will feel they do have to be tribal about it and that the, the system kind of encourages that yeah, it's difficult are... for them to be I think there are pressures on them to do that well, and and very specifically cognitive reward mechanisms I mean we know about in in social media obviously and, and there's ever clear evidence that the angry oppositional tweet or message will be amplified faster and then you get the reward because everyone you know if I tweet something very hostile about how awful I think Boris Johnson is, the feedback I get from that will be very reinforcing and it'll, you know, consciously or unconsciously, I think, oh, that's the, that's where the, that's the money shot there, right? If I do mm. more of that, then I get more reward. And obviously that works uh, for politicians too. But even outside of, of that uh, amplifying uh, chamber, there must be social interactions going on all the time for politicians that are sort of steering them towards the least empathic behaviors. What I worry about is that it becomes what's sort of dehumanizing at some point, but also it means that the whole culture and idiom of politics then recruits people who are less, if not capable, certainly less inclined to behave kindly and compassionately. Yeah. It starts to select the wrong type of person. And I'm sure it deters some other people. The tribalism of it would deter me. You know, I'm sure it deters some people and that then they you know, don't want to be in that situation and don't want to go into this place that feels like that. And of course, and every so often, you know, you get different people. I know, you know, Jeremy Corbyn tried, didn't he? And after John Smith died, people said, oh, it's all going to be, it's all going to change. And Prime Minister's questions is not going to be this bear pit anymore. It's all going to be different. And it never does change. You know, in the end, it never does change. And it comes back to that. And, you know, there have been people suggesting things like changing the shape of the room might make a difference. And, you know, you see lots of, you know, other parliaments in other places where people sit in circles and curves. Somebody was suggesting to me mixing up the seating, you know, would they people be able to be kinder to each other if the seating was mixed up or, or is it is it that we have this you know mainly two-party system but then you watch something like uh, so I, I used to have this sort of idealized idea of coalitions and it's all marvelous and then you watch Borgen I know it's a drama not mm. real life but they were all you know plotting and as yeah well, my you know. sense is that part of this or an underrecognized part of this is that it happens before you get even get into the Chamber of the Commons. And I think there is a sort of a cognitive toughening thing that happens where early on, let's say you, you get selected and you're fighting a constituency, you have to accept a certain number of propositions, which is your party line or the manifesto that you're defending. You then more or less have to you know, manage the cognitive dissonance, which is I, I, I must believe this is true. And whether or not I, might, I, can, I have to downplay in my own consciousness the nuances that mean it might not be entirely true. I also have to discount the views of people who definitely disagree with me because that's just confusing. If I, in, in every husting, say, well, yes, actually, obviously, you've got a point there. I might be completely wrong about this, but let's hope I'm right. Then you lose the election. And then enough times of doing that, you, once you've discounted criticism, you start to, and, then you, and also you feel it as an attack on yourself. There's a kind of a thickening of the skin that goes on where I wonder if you actually almost you deaden the nerves that would allow you to even feel a certain kind of empathic process. Yes, I think you might be kind of almost in training to to get rid of that in order to be able to to win and to succeed in that in that sort of area, which I think is a you know a terrible shame. And there've been you know there's movements like the Compassion in Politics movement trying to change that, which has people from all parties on it. But there was there was some interesting work done in the states on on something called integrative complexity on um, looking at the speeches of presidential candidates, and that they found in the in the first two years of being president, say, um, will 
increase their integrative complexity. So they will say, well, this, this issue is nuanced and it is very tricky because there is X and there is Y and give a lovely nuanced reasoned argument about things. And that when it comes into the two years before election, they just say, no, this is so. And that this complexity goes right down. That's very interesting. And you literally see that playing out actually in the last eight, nine months in politics, that the virtue that Rishi Sunak aspired to bring after Liz Truss was quite explicitly saying, look, we recognise there's going to be trade-offs, it's going to be hard. And already you can see, partly I'm sure it's conscious because campaign mode is campaign mode and it has to be simplifying up to a point. And partly I'm sure it is just fatigue at thinking, if I try and hold these two slightly contradictory thoughts in my head at the same time, that we want to have nice public services, but also I want to give my party tax cuts. It's just mentally exhausting and I will have to choose one of them in the end. What's the balance between a kind of consciously cynical decision to simplify and an unconscious sort of, for want of a better word, stupefaction that makes people (laughs) go for a simpler cognitive pathway? Yeah. And it might just be that in the end, that becomes the only way that they can do it, which is a real shame. And so it it was noticeable after the budget announcements and all the interviews with Labour politicians about what they thought about the childcare policy, say, increasing childcare is obviously something they're in favour of. But they're almost not allowed to say, well, that was good. Yeah, no, we're pleased about that. But they need to do X, Y, Z. But instead they have to say, well, yes, and why has it taken 13 years? Yes, I have a heuristic where if I open an opposition press release email and it starts with the words, too little, too late, then you think, I don't need to read the rest of that. No, it's exactly as you say. The problem, I suppose, with that rigid campaign mode thinking and that willful simplification is ultimately you're having to make hard political choices and you're saying, I need to put my party first because we need to win the election. There's a perfectly good ethical argument that says... So if you don't win, what's the point? Yeah, exactly. I think think my party is ultimately right on the big things and therefore I'm going to do some slightly bad wrong things in the greater good. That's politics. What's interesting about that is you then have to switch off your capacity to see things from someone else's point of view. And does that mean that at a certain level, success in politics is fundamentally anti-empathic? I don't think they have to turn it off because there are winners, if you like, in politics. Jacinda Ardern is always mm. always quoted as this one because she has actively talked about making kindness part of things. She's actively said you shouldn't be concentrating on being the most powerful person in the room. You should be having empathy for others around you. It's interesting because I've just been in New Zealand for a while and internationally her reputation is amazing and loads of people will say, oh, isn't it amazing and we need people to be like that. I was there when she when she stood down and many people were, you know, really, really disappointed and were, were telling me that. But it was clear that there was, there was also amongst a, a group of people there an absolute hatred of her and partly a hatred for saying that she was kind and that she was putting kindness at the heart of things. I'm sure a large part of that is misogyny and I want to come back to that. But because we've now, we sort of segged from compassion, kindness into empathy. And again, we're using these words synonymously. And let's drill a little bit into empathy as as a distinct category, just because it can be coldly rationalistic in a way, because you're just projecting. I mean, psychopaths are capable of understanding what's going on in the mind of yeah, someone else. Yeah, that's why else. they can be so horrid. Yeah. Torturers, as you say in the book, can have to know how a torture will be effective, which is a sort of a kind of a projection to someone else's mind. That doesn't seem empathic. So help me understand what empathy is as a psychological mechanism. Yeah. So, I mean, it crosses over again with compassion, obviously, and kindness. I mean, some people divide it into sort of two types. You have cognitive empathy, which is me thinking about your situation, say, and thinking about what you might think and what might be difficult for you, what might be easy for you. And then there's emotional empathy, which is actually feeling viscerally, if you like, your pain. If you were crying, sort of feeling that upset that you're feeling, whereas the cognitive empathy might be working out why you're crying and why you're feeling what you're feeling. I disagree that those are completely separate in a way, because I think in a difference in a certain situation, you don't think just one or the other. So if, if you're crying, I would be trying to work out why and feeling that pain and upset for you on your behalf. Are those happening in different parts of the brain? And the reason I asked this, apart from the fact that I'm fascinated by it, is I was just thinking in a separate context about AI and robots and how good they will be at eliciting empathic responses from us. I cried at the end of Toy Story 3 because something in me was triggered by an emotional situation that Woody and Buzz Lightyear were experiencing. Now, wasn't empathising with Woody and Buzz in the way that I would with a person or or was I? What, so, do you see what I mean? Well, there's all sorts yeah. of different things going on there. Yes, in a way, we love viewing even a robot 
But if you have a little dog robot and we, we program it so it runs to, near to the wall and then gets, I'm saying already, gets scared and comes back again. If we keep doing this. Presents we, as yes, if scared. Then yeah. we think, oh, it's scared. The poor thing is scared of walls. Oh, how terrible. And it's just that they've programmed it to behave in that way and we, we imbue it with that thing. So I think it's, if we That's can. compassion. In a way, if we can do that for a robot, no wonder we can do it for, for Woody who yeah. speaks. But so I was saying one of the ways cognitive empathy suggests that I'm doing something much more sophisticated than my brain in terms of thinking, Yes. oh, I can put yes. myself in the position yeah. of the person. Oh, I, I see someone homeless. I am capable of thinking, well, there, but for the grace of God, that could be me if I just lost everything or it, I am able to then cogitate myself into that. Yes, position. it is more complicated, if you like. It's more complex and it's a, it's a more sophisticated response in a way. Whereas so if you put somebody in a brain scanner and you show them a video of somebody being hurt, then you will see the same area of receptors for pain in the brain being activated as if the pain was happening to them. If you show someone having an injection, it's similar to when you have an injection yourself. Now, obviously, it's not the same. It's not as bad because you can't actually feel it. I mean, for a few people, it is who who have such strong empathy that they they are in pain if somebody does this and they can feel. Some people have mirror touch empathy. If somebody scratches their face, they feel it on their face. And that's it's really fascinating to watch and really extraordinary. And that, that's really hard for them if someone else is hurt because they really feel it. But I think in, in real life, they are combined. There are parts of the brain for, say, watching somebody in pain is where your reception of pain would be. And then there are parts of the brain which would say more to do with say theory of mind and imagining what the other person is thinking and but they could both be activated at the same time because you're still thinking about what it's like for that person to be receiving the pain that they're receiving and then there are also interestingly you cite in the book the case of surgeons who for very good practical reasons are less inclined to as it were feel the pain of someone getting an injection when they look at it, their brains don't respond in that way because they have to administer so many injections or if yeah, you're a surgeon, yeah. they have to literally put a scalpel into someone's arm. If you psychologically, if you flinched at the very thought of that, yeah. you wouldn't be able to carry out the operation. And what's interesting there, I suppose, is there is a moral good in being able to detach yourself as well. Yes, they have had to learn to turn it off. And so if, in experiments, if you put a cotton bud against somebody's arm or a needle into somebody's arm, the response of most doctors is the same. It is no worse the needle being put in their arm than the cotton bud because they have managed to dampen that and it happens through training. And so if you get brand new medical students and you get them to stitch up a very realistic fake looking arm, sort of rubber arm, they will flinch a bit like you or I might flinch trying to do that. Once they're more experienced, then that starts to go because you do need to cut yourself off from that. If you're digging people out of an earthquake, then can't just stop to, to think, oh my God, this situation is so terrible. If necessary, if you've got to pull them and they're foot comes off. You've got to pull them when their foot comes off. If that's saving their life, you've got to be able to do that. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The challenging thing I find from this is it's possible, therefore, that there is a threshold in politics where callousness is... Oh, you think they've done the same as is, the doctors? ...is necessary. It might be. It might be. Because if you think... So obviously there's an extreme level. If you're kind of Stalin, you, you just think, well, a million people here or there, it's all for the greater good of socialism. And that's obviously deranged and tyrannical and wrong. But... <laughs> so I'm going to say that you should, those things should never be followed by buts. <laughs> but, so it's like he was a tyrant's but No, but at the same time, somewhere le at the less extreme end of politics, if you are making decisions, for example, you're transferring the exchequer and you're saying, I need to allocate a certain amount of budget. Okay, nice. The, the medicines agency, they are having to make decisions that say, we can afford this cancer treatment, but not this one. And 
yeah, and some of those are political decisions and ministers have to make decisions about the budgets where at some stage, if they stop to think, but people are going to die as a result of this decision, they would be paralyzed. They wouldn't be able to make decisions. So actually, there does have to be some of that sort of nerve deadening. There does. So in a sense, I think we all do that. If you think of parent, then they're... It's mean to say, no, you can't have a fifth piece of chocolate cake. You've got to go to bed now. But we know you have to do that because that would, that is the kind thing to do, actually. But at that moment, it doesn't feel very kind because they're upset and they don't want to go to bed. And what they wanted was some more cake. And parents are saying no to the, the person they love more than anyone. They're denying them the thing they want at that moment, but they know that they have to do that. And so I think it's it's on a spectrum of that. And that if you're in charge of deciding which, which drugs we can afford people to have and what's worth extending someone's life for three months for, which are, as you say, life and death decisions, then I think, again, you have to blunt a bit of that to be able to do that. It's still done from a good place in the first place. So it's still done with kindness. It's just in a bigger context. And I suppose what makes that different from the decision that parents make on behalf of their children is that in a political context or in a any organization, you're unlikely to have the bonds of trust and intimacy that make you think, well, I'm sure, I'm sure the health secretary is basically acting like my beneficent parents <laughs> in making this decision. And actually, yeah. I feel such intuitive, natural affection and affinity with them that I don't mind the fact that I'm not getting the thing that I want. Clearly, that's not how people respond to politicians. But actually, it does suggest that trust and identification which comes back to that point about in-groups and out-groups. There is some point of intersection where trust and this feeling of solidarity with the person making the decision has to imbue on that decision a level of kindness. We have to have faith that you know, kindness is involved and that has yeah. to be, we have to feel part of the wider society or community for yeah. that to function. And I think we have to, to hope that each individual MP did go into politics for a good reason in the first place. They wanted to make the world better. They may disagree over how to will- make the world better. But they haven't gone into it to be unkind. Now, some may have gone into it to aggrandise themselves and to try to get power, but you hope... I can't think of any. I mean, of I, any I don't I'm any sure such people exist. There somewhere. must be the odd one. But on the whole, whatever party, I I do believe they were sincere in the first place about wanting to do it. I may disagree with how the, how they want to do it, and other people will have different views on that. That's interesting, isn't it? Because, yes, there is an assumption that politics is ultimately, for a lot of people, about power and also that succeeding you need power obviously to, to you can exercise it for good or bad but you still need to get power that the process of taking power requires a level of ruthlessness it's interesting that there's no opposite word to ruthlessness when you don't talk about people mm. being ruthful you can only soon be without and that therefore it's competitive there is again this sort of cod darwinian idea that it's just about survival of the fittest and this all militates against kindness and also and this sort of gets us back to the Jacinda Ardern point. In culturally, socially, that's quite a macho male way of conceiving of politics. Yeah, yeah. And so there are some people who really hate her for saying that she was putting kindness at the heart of things. I wrote a piece about how, when my book came out, about how kind people can be winners. I have never been trolled so much. At the fact that I listed her as one of the examples of people who said she had put kindness at the heart of their things. I'm guessing by men, <laughs> first of all. Funny that, <laughs> yes. And, and anti-vaxxers as well. Yeah, we'll come on to that. This is fascinating in the book. You say this idea that somehow, for want of a better word, just being a swaggering, ruthless bastard gets you to the corner office in the, and gets you success. It's not only unpleasant, but mercifully not even true. Yes, the evidence does not suggest that. You can be kind and be a winner. Yeah, so there's a big study of... 50,000 leaders in the States done by a guy called Joe Folkman. And he got all their staff to do 360 degree feedback appraisals of them. So where you say what you think of your boss. And there was only a one in 2000 chance of them being an effective, successful boss and effective at, at their jobs and being disagreeable, say, or, or unkind. So in fact, the success went along with the ones who are agreeable and kind. And in a way, if you want loyalty from your staff, then you need to be nice to them and then they'll stay. And the people with the unkind bosses say across the board, they are much more likely to look for another job in six months time. So especially at times when there are staff shortages, to be a successful leader, it's more important than ever to treat staff 
ethically and kindly. I think it's really telling that the field of academic research around this is known as ethical leadership. And it's, it's been called ethical leadership rather than kind leadership, which I think comes back to the kindness having an image problem. They, they completely cross over those things. And yet I think it's seen within business as a more acceptable phrase to talk about ethical leadership than and, kind and- leadership, because kind leadership is all a bit and specifically female. a feminine virtue kind of exactly exactly is that yeah. because of generations hundreds of years of associating kindness with parenting with motherhood or what's going on yeah i on think there? it is and i think that's how kindness has ended up being seen as a soft thing as well i mean it's interesting that in the i've been doing lots lots of talks about my book and obviously people are self selecting audiences there and they are the majority are women and do we need to rebrand kindness <laughs> well this is why i call one of my chapters kind people can be winners because honestly it works on that point of being trolled by oh, yeah. men, mostly, I think, I imagine, it is, there is this perception that we were just picking up what we were saying, that it's, it's seen as a feminine virtue. Let's practice some empathy then on the angry men who go to your talk or see you, you read your piece in the newspaper and immediately start hammering out angry, vicious poison onto the keyboard because they are threatened by you in some way? What, what, what's, let's empathise with them. Why are they doing they, that? They dislike her a lot. And I think they maybe are... Her being Jacinda. Jacinda oh, yeah. Ardern. Yeah, they dislike Jacinda Ardern a lot. And they, uh, it's all gets mixed up with sort of anti-vaxxers. And so, so some are very unhappy about the lockdowns in New Zealand and that lots of teachers and nurses who wouldn't get vaccinated did lose their jobs there. And they're very unhappy about that. I think they're very unhappy that a woman is telling them what to do. And what they seem to be most cross about is that she dare say that she's kind. I mean, the descriptions they gave of her honestly were worse than what they would say about Hitler. I mean, they were... Is that because... So bad. It was like she is the most evil person you could ever imagine on the planet. I always work on the assumption that when someone is that poisonous and enraged, it's because they have felt some proposition as an existential threat. Something has come along to say, you've got what I've come to understand as the suite of sacred values that are all bound up with your identity. And if someone challenges those beliefs, you feel it in a very visceral way as deeply threatening. And it's interesting that the assertion of kindness as a political virtue, and also maybe something paradoxical about you shouldn't have to say it. If you've got it, then it's somehow immodest <laughs> yeah. to say you're yeah. kind and therefore you've yeah. invalidated it. Yeah. I still can't quite get to how that's so viscerally threatening to someone. So they would say things like, how is it kind that some people have to go to food banks? How is it kind that people lost their jobs? How is it kind that people had to endure lockdowns and couldn't go to the cinema. How is that kind? Tell me how that's kind. Okay. So it's what they don't like is the arrogation of an idea that shouldn't, it's that political trust point again. It's yeah. saying, I'm not part of your political community. I withhold from you the benefit of the doubt that your motives are good. And therefore by describing your tribe and your motives as kind, you're using it in a way that is such an affront to my understanding yeah. of kindness yeah. that it's actually it's not just wrong, it's really insulting. Yes, and that it's actually worse than if she hadn't said it. Yeah, I think okay. Was so they, she's debasing the yes. idea of kindness. Yes, so I think, okay, I understand I think it, it may be a hostage to fortune for politicians yeah. to say that they're going to act kindly, which I think is a real shame. And interestingly, in all the work on ethical leadership, it does suggest that leaders should announce that they're going to be ethical leaders, which again is difficult because then you might get somebody saying, well, that wasn't very ethical, was it? If you set yourself those standards out loud, then does it make it easier to live up to them? But I'd like to think people can say out loud that they're going to do it because I think it's a shame if it's got to be kind of kept secret. What, what is it that's so powerful about this word that we're saying was so soft that people then feel threatened by it? Was that prominent in your mind when making it the title of the book? I mean, you could have given it a, a more, for want of a better word, sort of hard-edged clinical term. You really lean into the fact that there is this word that people don't necessarily think of, as we discussed at the beginning, as a term of academic scientific rigour. Yeah, because I, I want to kind of reclaim the fact that kindness is okay and kindness is good and kindness is not soft and kindness makes you feel better and you can still win. It's it's okay. What I want, obviously, is for people to feel it's okay to do it, not that they have to somehow keep kindness secret. And what then, this gets really hard now because it seems to me that the hardest bit of this then is going to be building the bridges, whether they are cultural or institutional, 
between interpersonal kindness, about which you've written so well, and the case for which is sort of unanswerable in your book. I mean, it's absolutely clear that this is a, we should all be much more kind to each other and that we all can. And in the case of politics, where there are all these structures that do militate against it, and if the gap is one of feeling a sense of common identity with the people making the decisions, if it's you know, the angry anti-vax man has to somehow feel that although he doesn't agree with Jacinda Ardern, he recognises they are part of the same broader democratic enterprise so he can give her a bit of the benefit of the doubt. And that's the thing that seems to have broken down. And this is literally the hardest question. What can we do to bridge that gap? If anything, help me out. It is, no, you're right. It is a very hard gap to bridge. I think that somehow politics has to make it so that it is less tribal and that it's okay for us to know about things like politicians being friends with each other. We need to know more about the ways in which they are working together to try and do things rather than only ever seeing them fighting. Now, of course, this is partly because bad news is news and I'm not saying it shouldn't be. Every so often people will say, let's have bulletins that are only good news. They never last very long. Here we are in Brighton. We don't need to know that 20 people weren't murdered in Brighton last night. If 20 people were murdered in Brighton, we need to know that because we need to know why. So I, I don't have a problem with the fact that news is going to be bad news. If, if uh... and There's also a, cycle, a time cycle there, isn't there? There's the, the classic thought experiment of the 50-year newspaper. If you only publish a newspaper once every 50 years, then the headlines would be billions of people lifted out of poverty, polio practically <laughs> eradicated. There was a Cold War ended without nuclear conflagration. This is all good news. But if you have your news cycle every minute on Twitter, then you get the bad news. I got distracted there. Yeah, so somehow we need to find ways of starting to notice that there is some kindness going on in politics and for politicians to not feel that they have to always appear to be arguing with each other while still being able to win in a first-past-the-post system. Where does civility then fit in in this? Because it seems to me that's a term that's often used as a way of saying, well, we're not going to get to actual sincere kindness in politics. So the sort of the way station is this organised hypocrisy, which is, uh, and I, I, I mean, that's a good thing, by the way. I think the hypocrisy is probably underrated. There has to be there's lots of social interactions involved with bits of hypocrisy, which is being civil and polite. Uh, psychologically, what's going on there? Are we, is that the best we can hope for is that the hypocrisy what is is civility does practicing civility make you more empathic yeah and civility does really matter because it's, that's the obviously the opposite of what we often see on on social media and so civility does matter a lot and there was this wonderful woman lady montague who died in 1762 and she came up with the civility costs nothing and buys everything idea and said that we needed more civility in politics and what i would like politicians to know about the research say from jeremy frimmer he analysed the things that the US Congress people said on the floor. And he found that actually their approval ratings went up when they were civil and down when they were rude. And people didn't like it when they were rude. He also analysed thousands and thousands of Trump's tweets. And he found again that actually he got fewer likes when he was being rude and more when he was being reasonable. And that actually his supporters many of them, don't actually like him because he's often rude to people. They like him despite his rudeness. And that actually being civil does make politicians more popular. They People really like that and respect that. And I suppose, don't like them being angry. And I suppose actually thinking about it, the evidence for that is how warmly, instantly warmly and well people respond to a sense of humour when a politician yeah. can, can summon one. I mean, it's rare because actually for all sorts of interesting reasons, which would make a different podcast, actually, we should definitely do a podcast about that. But actually humour is, when it's not bullying, mean humour, actually yeah. an element of self-deprecation or it, because there's so much instance, you know, to, to laugh with someone is one, must has to be one of the most empathic things that you can do, You're that point of connection. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's interesting that a joke doesn't have to be very good at all in the House of Commons for it to actually bring, completely bring the house down. Because, because everyone's so relieved. <laughs> exactly. That there's, yes, something entertaining going on and something nice. Maybe they're relieved because there's something nice going on. So I think people will reward them for being civil to each other and being nice to each other. I mean, thinking about the House of Commons, which is a very small, tight and close space. And you mentioned that the sort of the architecture and I agree with you, seems to drive that the ferocity of the situation. Interestingly, when the chamber was uh, bombed in the Second World War and had to be reconstructed, and there was a debate as to whether to replicate the exact one, which is the one we've got, or do something more kind of horseshoe and open. And 
I can't remember the quote, but Churchill in the debate said, no, this is this is the, the sort of the cockpit of democracy. This is how we do it. Cockpit in the sense of cockfighting right. as well as this flying airplane. Anyway, that's a distraction. But yes, it, he, Churchill, who was very influential at that time, <laughs> being Churchill in the middle of the war, said, no, we've got to keep it as it is because British democracy has that intensity and ferocity and the, the overcrowdedness, the sort of sweaty chamber is in the DNA of British democracy. And that, I think that, that idea really stuck. And it's yeah, and it's interesting that other, how, how other countries haven't followed that or other parliaments haven't really followed that that much recently. They do tend to have different designs. I always think it always strikes me though when you see the, the three party leaders say at the Cenotaph together or if they go to a funeral of a leader overseas and suddenly you see the three of them all together in a line and remember that they're probably chatting quite civilly and nicely to each other as they arrive at that. And they're not sort of hating each other at, a, at each other's throats when they go to those events. I'm guessing. I don't no, know. No, there was an interesting... But I bet they're not. I saw something interesting not long ago that Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer have each other's mobile phone numbers because, which was, would sort of make sense, obviously, if there's some huge terrorist attack or something happens and every now and again, you might just need to say, look, can we just coordinate? You need a hotline. That's true. Yeah, they got to be able to get in touch. But interestingly, that wasn't the case with Liz Truss and Boris Johnson and their opposite numbers, which again, isn't that surprising. It's quite a small but significant metric of polarization and sort of rehumanization, actually, whether these people clearly they should have each other's telephone numbers. I think it's interesting that at the moment we do have leaders who appear to be more polite. And I wonder if maybe we've reached peak non-politeness. Peak unkindness. Yes. And maybe think, maybe if you look around, Biden's polite, maybe things have changed a bit. And I wonder whether actually what's also happening is we've had a period of of quite intense ideological polarisation. I mean, the Labour Party, obviously, with Jeremy Corbyn, that was a, an explicitly socialist ideological project. The Conservative Party was captured by a, a sort of revolutionary ideology in, in Brexit. For various reasons that we don't need to go into, those things have slightly run aground. And I'm interested in ideology itself as a cognitive process by which you, again, you have to exclude all sorts of ways of looking at the world. One definition that I think of as, a, as an ideologue is someone who, when their theory bumps into reality, they demand that reality move aside. And that, again, is essentially anti-empathic, isn't it? Yeah. And in a way, what's interesting is that most people do manage to kind of let go of some of their ideology and not have that as a really strong thing. But there was talk at the time of Brexit of all these families split apart by Brexit. And I'm sure there probably are some still split apart by Brexit. Most of us will just decide that they've agreed to disagree in a way. They're not going to keep, they may have had some massive rows about it, but now they're just agreeing to disagree and accepting. They're seeing things from another point of view. They may not agree with them, but they're just thinking, well, they are allowed their view and I am allowed mine and are getting on with it. And I think I think that's really interesting that most people are doing that. Yeah, it is very interesting, actually. Compassion and kindness are phenomenally resilient in a way that having a desiccated, dry political doctrine isn't. Which actually, when I put it like that, seems so obviously that's yeah, the Yeah, and case. the reason is we know those people, so we excuse them. And just as one way of not being quite as annoyed with people on social media is to imagine, well, what if you what if you knew that person? If you knew that person, you think they're nice generally, then you just think, well, they've made a mistake in this one area. I don't agree with them. I don't know how they think that, but I know that generally they're all right. There is one question, a penultimate question then, which is if, as you say, in families and with friends, it is easier to make those empathic connections and judgments. And I've always been curious to what is the biggest feasible group in which you can have a level of political solidarity like that. So if it's your street, you can all pull together to get, it's easy to go to your neighbour and say, let's all pull some money and buy a new hanging basket or whatever it is or new lights for the street. if it's a village you might be able to say town yes gets harder country well then when you think about the benefits bill you're thinking well why am i paying in so someone else i don't know can get that out europe eu level clearly a problem for, at least in the uk our country will pay into this budget and some romanians might get that money no i don't like that so what is this you know, is there a problem where you need to find or a challenge of finding a feasible level of solidarity where the unit is big enough you can make hard political choices but small enough that people can actually identify with everyone who's in it. I think it's always going to depend on what the issue is so in a way there hasn't been a load of debate about should we be helping Ukraine or not. The country is helping Ukraine and 
in a world sense, in a global sense, the one thing that most people in the world agree on is that the planet needs to be protected. We can obviously disagree over how the planet needs to be protected, but a lot of people think the planet should be protected. And then suddenly you all do feel a bit more like one world when when you think about that. So I think it will be different levels for different contexts and different issues. Yes, that makes perfect sense. And you, you use the great example in the book of you can facilitate people feeling empathy with oceans. Is it possible to yeah. feel empathy yeah. at that level? Yeah. yeah. With the sea? So there was a, yeah, a study where they got people to actually feel empathy with oceans. And also I think that proper nuanced debate is always the answer to these things. And the, obviously one of the big problems everyone always says with social media is how short those sentences are, that there is no room for nuance and then everybody's upset. But that if you look at things like, even on issues that people will really might disagree about, like immigration and things like that, if you get groups of people together to generate lines of arguments around it, have deliberative workshops, things like that, I've seen some of these and people take them really seriously. And it turns out people's views are much more nuanced than you think that there was something in particular that they were worried about that might happen and that if you get people together to try to come up with solutions to these things, that, that sometimes they can and they don't do it along party lines. And so I would I would like to see more of those sorts of things and that people take it very seriously. I've been on a, a jury and beforehand lots of people said to me, oh, half the people won't take it seriously. Everyone took it so seriously, so seriously in both the cases I did, so seriously. And because it is easy to be overwhelmed when you think about it in the biggest scale and solving big political problems. And, and as you say, you look at it from the outside and think politics is just vile and no one's got any compassion or kindness left in it. I suspect a lot of people listening to this will want to feel, well, already, I hope, feeling encouraged by what we've said about the resilience of kindness. But what are then on a micro level as a way of finishing the individual things that we can do? What's the step that we take now as individuals that's something that is within our power to do, to sort of work with the grain of resilient kindness and against the political culture that militates against it? Yeah, so I think there's a few things you can do. One is to really decide to make an effort to really listen to what people are saying when they tell you something before thinking about what you're going to say next, but just to really listen to them. One, another is the, the best empathy training is out there for the taking is reading fiction. And so there's really good evidence that reading fiction really, really improves your ability to understand other people's points of view because you are taken straight into the mind of somebody with such a different life from yours and such a different perspective to yours. That makes a real difference. And I think the other thing is talking to strangers because talking to strangers can be a kind act in itself, but it also reminds you that the world is not all quite as bad as it seems because there has been amazing progress on this. We don't go out for an evening to watch a hanging for a laugh, which is nice, I think. There have been improvements. You can have two steps forward and one step back, but I really believe in progress and kindness. And so talking to strangers reminds you of your shared humanity and that there are all these really nice people around. Most people are doing their best. No, sorry, I'll rephrase that. Most people are trying to do their best. And this was, as you say, it's about and intention and motive are key. And when yeah. it's like one thing, I can't remember who said it, but... There is this point, Samuel Johnson, I think, that you, it's sufficient to have perfection in the mind's eye. It's something you move towards. You don't have to expect that you're ever going to get there. And that's probably true in this case, too. And we're always keen to be optimistic on the podcast at the end. And that's, I think that's definitely, that's got to be a record-breaking level of optimism. The optim the optimistometer that if we had one on the podcast would be sort of it's off high. the charts, Hooray. very high. So Hooray. let's let's stop I am there. optimistic. It, it'll get better with yes. the odd blip. Claudia Hammond, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Thank you once again to our guest, Claudia Hammond. If you want to find out more about her latest book, The Keys to Kindness, or the work of the Sussex Centre on Kindness, uh, which he's involved in, then we have links to both of those in the show notes. As ever, if you enjoyed this edition, please do share it with your friends or even write a review. Thanks for listening. I'm Philip Berman, the producer. Until next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.